0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You are now listening to British Brothers, the
0: True Cry podcast. Right, there we go. We are recording. Nikki, Perfect, welcome to the podcast thank you for your time for my listeners that don't know who you are they will after the end of this chat but do you want to just give yourself a bit of a introduction maybe sum up your illustrious career in three sentences
1: In three sentences. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's amazing. (laughs) Gosh. Yeah. So I, um, I am a former police officer. Last decade of my 31 years service was as a international hostage and crisis negotiator. And I've now turned trainer, international trainer consultant, and I help people to use the skills that I learned as a negotiator in sort of everyday difficult conversations, really.
0: So cool. I've been stalking you really. Uh, (laughs) Looking at your various websites, so there's NikkiPerfect.com,
1: there is yeah,
0: theCommunicationCoach.co.uk.
1: Yeah, any other
0: websites that I've missed?
1: No, just those two. I only. um, It's like you've somehow along the way you have to like like use your surname, don't you? Come on, like if I have the surname Perfect, there's no point in not not using it anywhere. But I only did the NikkiPerfect.com after uh, the book was launched, just as a uh, somebody said, oh, you need to have a website in your name before. Kind of anybody else does it. And I was like, why would anybody else have a website in my name? That's weird. But of course, people do. And then it was an easier place to send people for the book.
0: It kind of makes more sense, doesn't it, as a tie in to the book? So I was going to ask, and it's probably a daft question that you've been asked a million times is perfect your actual surname?
1: Yes. So perfect is my real surname. As my dad always said to my mum, he was born perfect and she only became (laughs) it when she met and married him.
0: I love that. That's so cool. So, tell me about your time in the police before we get into the hostage stuff. So, you started in the late 80s. Now, my maths figures out that you started in about 1988.
1: Is that right? Yeah. So, I joined when I was a police cadet at the very tender age of 18 in 1986. Oh, that's yeah. So, you were just off, you were very close. (laughs) Yeah. So, 1986, and I became like a, a regular police officer in. Nineteen eighty-eight. So I did a year as a cadet and then became right. a police officer in eighty-eight.
0: So what force was that with?
1: That was with the Metropolitan Police in London.
0: Straight with the Met. So the, when you're first a cadet, then and you're eighteen, you're very young. What prompted you to follow that career path?
1: Yeah, that's and that's a really interesting question because I I wouldn't have told you that I'd always wanted to be a police officer because it wasn't that case. I had I knew I liked sport and I knew I liked people. So in my head, as I was reaching those, that time when I was doing my A-levels, so I've done, I did my five, I got I think five GCSEs and was looking to do A-levels. And my dad very wisely realised I wasn't going to be an academic in any way, shape or form or go to university. It just wasn't me. School for me was a social event. I went for sport, music and chatting, really, if I'm honest. honest. And I really enjoyed school. You know, it wasn't a problem going because I really enjoyed it. So I was at that stage, you know, when people start, oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So I was like, well, I'll either do a, be a sports teacher because I love sport, or I will be a police officer because I like people and that seems to be okay. And my dad saw an advert in the newspaper that he reads and it was an advert for the police cadets and it showed all these young people doing great things like abseiling, canoeing, rock climbing, having fun, laughing, joking. And he said, "Does it? do you fancy this? And I was like, yes. That would be amazing. So we went to the careers department at Scotland Yard, as it was then, and they showed me videos of people doing these amazing things and told me that I would get paid and that I'd stand a good chance of getting in because I was from London. And I was like, yeah, this this is amazing. This is great. And that's what I did, and I became successful. And on the 5th of December in 1986, my parents dropped me off at the gates of Hendon, and that's where I stayed for the next 31 years not at Hendon but within that environment for 31 years yeah and I honestly I loved it it was such a variety because you there's so many different jobs within policing that you can do so you you don't have to sit still in the same job you can um, train you can do all sorts of things yeah I really enjoyed it.
0: Did you have an idea of which of those sort of forks you wanted to take within policing did you know what role or was it a case of perhaps you wanted to try different things what was your thought process?
1: yeah so initially when i joined policing they used to be called home beats then in in the good old bad old days as people would say so they used to be called home beat officers they're now called neighbourhood police officers and i really like like the idea of that because but um, you got to know your community really well. Everybody knew you. You knew everybody. You knew what was going on. So I I thought that that's what I wanted to do. And then I joined policing and I just loved being a street police officer. I loved the variety of it. I loved not knowing what was going to happen next. I loved the fact that you could talk to people. I remember, you know, just in. So in the 80s, we had more police officers on the street and we had more time to do policing and so, for example, I went to visit a guy uh, who'd been burgled and he'd lost his wife not long before. So I ended up going and spending a couple of hours with him on Christmas Day because I was at work on early turns. So uh, me and my colleague, my friend, we popped round just to make sure he was OK. And We stayed for a, a while with him. And that was the sort of aspects of policing. I really enjoyed being with people. And then I realised that I, there was an opportunity to drive fast cars. So I thought that that looks like fun as well. So then I became an advanced driver. So yeah, so no, in answer to your question, no, I had no plans when I joined policing other than perhaps I might do promotion at some stage, didn't really know what it was about. I was still, you know, I came from London, seen some things, but not really seen anything. So there were many jobs within policing that I didn't even know, knew exist, existed until Some you spoke to somebody and they went oh I've done this and you're like oh I didn't know you could do that how do you apply for that kind of thing so I had no structure at all I just kind of fell into stuff
0: it's weird because when I've spoke to former officers like I've had Jackie Malton on who you might have potentially worked with yeah and I think she also did the the driving course it seems to be a a sort of idea that people flirt with once they know what it is but it, it seems quite similar and I'm not comparing them at all because they're vastly different but I've worked in an office environment right and it's similar where there's roles within the industry that you don't know exist and it's only upon hearing it in passing maybe you know you grab a coffee or something you hear someone Oh, have you heard about the vacancy at so and so do you think that's strange though within a, a department such as the police where there's so many roles that people just aren't aware exist you'd think people would know everything wouldn't you yeah but it's
1: when you're at your station so You know, the Met is huge. It's a huge machine. And when you're at your station. So I started my policing career at at Catford in South East London. And then I went to Sydenham shortly afterwards. Um, And that's all I that's that was my world was policing Catford and Sydenham. So I knew things that that related immediately to me. So I knew of the territorial support group because. I got seconded to football matches. So Millwall was just down the road. So I did a lot of policing at Millwall. So we, I knew what they did. I knew that there was the mounted branch because I'd seen them about. And so they had an impact on my life. If I saw them, I knew there were firearms officers. Uh, Although when I first joined, you had to, we didn't have very many firearms officers. and, And those that were trained had to go and book their gun out of the safe at the police station if if something was happening and there was one car patrolling London. Obviously that increased. So I was aware of those immediate things. I was aware that it was a CID. At Catford I was aware that there were squads, different, like you know, robbery squads and all of those, but they were all very localised, all very localised. And then you'd hear of these other squads that existed, but they were never on my frame. So I, I kind of never really thought anything about them the only one I started to think about was the territorial support group because that felt for me because I was a, a uniformed officer that that felt like the next progression that was something different you were responsible for the whole of southeast area rather than just your little local police station and so that that was kind of the natural progression for me as a uniformed officer. But certainly for people like Jackie, because she, she was in the CID, the progression would have been to go into a squad and then maybe a squad and then maybe the, the main CID and then look at more centralised units. So, yeah. But, yeah, it is interesting because you don't know what you don't know, do you? And so sometimes you look on opportunities just because you don't know.
0: Well, that's it. I suppose when you're concentrated on what your role is, then any other roles aren't really your... They're outside your remit, aren't they? Really, so so it's not worth focusing on them. I'm curious to find out if if you felt there were any barriers, sort of being in the force uh, as a woman in that time. Were there anything that frustrated you? Any major differences between you and the men officers?
1: So um, the major thing that frustrated me was I couldn't wear trousers when I first joined police, and so that that was. A bit, I'm just not a skirts person. I'd never have been, and uh, they kind of just got in the way. With my little handbag that you had to carry. So that 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 was that was my biggest frustration. Honestly, it was my biggest frustration was not being able to wear trousers. When I went to Sydney, there was I was really lucky because there was some. I the team that I was on, we had a lot of females, and we had a lot of experienced females. So they kind of took me under their wing and really nurtured me and looked after me. There were some things like I wanted a posting on the area car so the area car was the car that got all the good calls the fast car and that was like a plum posting to have and I remember having conversations with with both advanced drivers driving the area car just a couple and members of of their family and saying well I don't want you on the car because you're not going to be strong enough to be able to do this you're not going to be able to do that you're not going to be able to do this and I remember thinking okay so I might not be physically as strong as you but I have different skills that I can bring." I can I can talk to people. I can listen to people. I can do different things. So so they they were the main frustrations. I didn't feel that that it hindered me at that stage. Well, actually, I didn't feel that it hindered me at any stage. I've always been very aware that you know when you look around, it, it's always a, a table full or a bus full or a crew full of guys. But as I say, when I when I was at Sydenham especially, we had a really strong we had some strong women, some really good, strong women on that team that really helped me out.
0: Have you noticed any changes to that over the last 30 years? So at what point have you thought, oh, we're actually making some progression here, if at all?
1: Yeah, so I think the first, first progression was we were allowed to wear trousers, which was, which was actually huge in those days.
0: When was that? Can you remember?
1: So that must have been, I was there at 88, it must have been 1990, 91, so the early 90s. At the time, you still were – if a female was arrested and they had a child, you were always called back to the station to go and look after the child. But things started changing because I remember I remember having a conversation as I got a bit more confident myself and, and saying to the person that called me back in, saying to them, so how many children do you have? And they were like, three. And I was like, well, I don't have any. <laughs> so it would make more sense for you to look after the children because you've got far more experience so things like that started to change and because uh attitudes started to change so it, suddenly you were doing the same roles as men were and only a few years before I joined they weren't they were like the station officer of all well, females left quite early on in in their careers there was always a saying that most female officers got married within five years and then they would leave policing but times my generation definitely we we were like, no, this is a career for us. This is, we want to be doing everything that we possibly can. We want to be enjoying it. And so the attitudes were changing anyway with, with the different generation that was coming in and has changed again and again and again.
0: It's constantly changing from what I can see. Looking back on that 20 years, then we'll come on to the hostage stuff soon. Apart from that lovely story about spending Christmas at that gentleman's house, which is nice. If you are asked, let's say you're at a party and you tell people what you did. And they say, oh, what's sort of your go-to story about that time in policing? It could be something a scene you've attended. It could be something that happened in the office. What's like your most memorable story from that time?
1: I think my most memorable story from that time is that we had a lot of fun. We did have, we had a lot of fun. So my life was either being at work or being with my colleagues. It was a huge drinking culture then. So we would either be at work, in the pub or doing something together. So it was a real family unit, especially on that frontline policing team. Some of the things I rem- I remember from those early days, you would always be out walking on your own. I remember going to Catford Shopping Centre. I was talking to somebody the other day, actually, who lives and works in Catford when I was talking about the black cat and the poverty in Catford and in catford shopping centre i was just doing my normal patrol and i saw a guy breaking into a shop a flower shop i chased him uh, unfortunately we lost him but next day the owners of the shop sent me a bunch of flowers just to say thank you for doing that so that sticks it that always sticks in my mind we used to do I mean, times have changed so much. But we used to do uh, school crossing patrol. So you used to go if the lollipop lady didn't turn up, you you would go and do the school crossing patrol. So you'd get to speak to all the kids. So that you know that that was nice. Although I have to say, like when you were sat down on on parade and the sergeant was reading out where what you were being posted to, you always knew if you were the like the youngest in service. So I would often get school crossing patrol because the senior officers would never get that. So it, it was quite. But that was OK. You, you learn. You learn to talk to people and listen to people, which was great. Getting my advanced course. That was really cool. I really enjoyed doing that advanced driving. Definitely. I re- I remember the stabbing of the sergeant in New Addington. And that's when things started to change, I think. Well, that's when I felt a bit of a shift, because before then we didn't have a uh, stab proof vest or met vest or anything like that. And that was a sudden shift in, hang on a sec, how are we protecting ourselves? And then I think there was more of a rise in violence. So there was physical assaults, but you had a, there was a code of conduct. I remember sitting in the van with a like an old school criminal who was uh, being arrested and he knew he was going to go back to prison. But even he was saying things like, you know, I'd never hit a woman. These youngsters, they've got no... They've got no decorum around, respect. There's certain things that you wouldn't do. So, you know, so there was a code of conduct within criminality, certainly in the southeast of London. You know, it was not long after the eras of the Crays and the Richardsons. And so there was this code of conduct about not, not him, women, being respectful for police officers, even if they were coming after you. And gradually over that, the late 80s, early 90s, there started to be a shift, started to be a change, more knife crime, certainly to start with, and then more gun crime. Police officers never used to get threatened with guns, or if they did, it was very rare. They didn't really get shot at. And then we went for a period where suddenly that all changed. There was more guns on the street. There was more people using violence against police officers. And then before you knew it, that wasn't even news. So it had become the norm uh, over the years. So, yeah. It's
0: frightening, isn't it, how years gone by, there was such a respect and almost to a point A fear of police officers, you know, the fear of being reprimanded, being arrested, that just does not seem to exist anymore. You'll see kids on the street and they just do whatever they want. There's no fear of repercussions. We don't have the cops on the street now, but it's a completely different time. What's your thoughts on how current policing standards are just in in relation to sort of the amount of crime that's going on, especially knife crime, which has just gone up and up and up and up and up how do you think it is now versus when you were there
1: yeah that's so there was th- the, there was definitely more police officers on the street so we would sit on a parade and we would parade you know between 20 and 30 people for our area so everybody had a task and a space to patrol but there was also the home beat officer and everybody honestly everybody knew them so if you stopped anybody in the street so fred was our local one people would say how's fred oh, can you ask Fred to pop around and see me? Or I'd go, I'd go Fred, there's been a burglary. He said, well, what, what's the method? And I said, oh, they've taken out the window frame. Oh, I think it might be so-and-so. Let me just make some inquiries about what they're doing. So they knew absolutely everybody, and they had the time to go and speak to people. You don't get that anymore. You have police officers that are run ragged, running from call to call, really reactive, not enough of them on the streets, in my opinion, but then you don't, and you also don't have the experience. So your probably your most experienced person on team now will be like three years service. When I joined team, we had people of 15, 20 years service. And that experience really helps because when you're learning the job and you're looking for your role models and you're looking to, you know, policing is all about people. It's all about human connection and human relationships. And that doesn't matter whether you're arresting somebody or you're going around to give a death message. It's all about people and their emotions. But when you don't have time to speak to people, time to build those relationships within the community, then there becomes a breakdown because people don't know you. So why would somebody come and speak to me about information about so-and-so down the road when they've never met me and they've never seen me? But whereas if they know and see Fred every single day and he goes to all their community events and they trust him, because trust is a huge thing, then they're more likely to go and speak to Fred about something and say, Fred, I just, I'm not sure about this. Can we just have a chat? And you've got that trust there. So it's, it's hard for police officers, I feel, to build relationships with the community and get that trust at the moment because there's not enough of them. And there's not enough of them being in single spots and places where people can just go, oh, I'm going to speak to Fred about this.
0: Yeah. The key word I picked up on there was reactive. Yeah. Which sort of ties in with the, the stabbing story that you mentioned. So it wasn't until someone got stabbed that the idea was we need stab vests. And it seems reactive rather than proactive. But do you think population comes into that? Because back, you know, two decades ago, the population was a lot less than what it is now. The community is now a far larger and the community spirit seems to have disappeared. Like we have na- we have neighbors, we never speak to them. We live on a cul-de-sac. I don't know pretty much 90% of my neighbours. So that community spirit seems to have gone. But again, we've never seen a policeman walk in the streets, a policewoman, whatever. Do you think the population and the culture is a factor?
1: Yeah, it could be, especially in, I live in a little village, so I, I know everybody and everybody knows me. And that's one of the reasons I moved from London to a little village is because it's that community. I think you get pockets of it. So you get pockets of community within communities like church, for example. If, if you're a church girl, you've probably got a community there. If your kids go to a club, you've probably got a little community there. Or maybe you go to a club yourself, so you'll have a little community there. Maybe even just going to the gym, you might have a community. But I, I appreciate what you're saying, you know, our everyday conversations. And I also wonder if our lifestyles have changed because we're all so busy. We're so busy, it's like I've got to focus on, right, I need to get to where I've got to get to. I've got so much going on in my head, like who's dropping the kids off? We had that conversation. With who's dropping the kids off? Who's picking the kids up? Who's making lunch? Where do I have to be? And emails. Honestly, I w- wake up. To, I can wake up to 150, 200 emails. When I was at work and I had a little tray, I didn't wake up to 200 pieces of paper in my tray. <laughs> that never happened. So technology is great, and it's also not so great. I always feel there's an upside of every downside and there's a downside of every upside. I feel that most of us are good people. And I've witnessed this in London all the time. On the Tube, I don't know if you've ever taken the Tube in London. It's a very special place where people don't talk to each other at all <laughs> unless something happens. And then they do. They all pull together and they all look out for each other. But until that time, you wouldn't have a conversation.
0: I think it's the same I mean, I've been on the tube. It's the same up here. You'll go on the train, and everyone's got the headphones in. But then again, I, th- I think the way things are now, if you did just start talking to someone, they'd think you're just really strange, which is <laughs> bizarre. But it's, the technology thing's interesting because people have communities online now, and like you said with the emails, there's so much ease of access. There's too much access, really. So you you could have 150 emails. Eighty percent might be nonsense or spam, or someone's just found your email somewhere and wants to sell you something. So it's, you're not going to get the ten sheets of paper that are meaningful. You know, it's all it's all just uh, a lot of it's spam. Maybe that's just me. But let's talk about your career then as a hostage negotiator. So the reason why I sort of reached out to your publisher HQ was because of the book that came out in August. So it's called Crisis: True Stories of My Life as a Hostage Negotiator. And it was in, let's have a look where we came, 2008 when you became a hostage and crisis negotiator and you attended this two-week, incredibly intensive course, you said, in December, yeah. which mm. turned turned your world upside down. So before we go on to how it turned your world upside down, how has this opportunity come about?
1: Yeah. And this is what I love about conversation and communication is because... People always talk about communication as a soft skill. And I always say, no, it's a life-changing, life-saving skill. And one of the reasons is because if you think about different times in your life where there's been a pivot and a change, for better or worse, it's generally because of a conversation. So this is how my change of life happened. I was working on the firearms team. So I was one of seven women out of 650 men at the time. I I was an inspector and I was leading a team of 43 men. Across the whole of London, so responsible for twenty-four hour armed response vehicles. I'd never been a firearms officer before. I was fairly new as an inspector, um, but I wanted wanted to challenge, a new challenge, a different challenge, and, and so an opportunity came up. A vacancy arose, so I applied for it, and I managed to get it. And whilst I was there, I'd been there for a couple of years, and I was I was finding it hard. I was I refer to it in the book as uh, feeling like a piece of jigsaw, whereby you you kind of fit, but you don't really fit you know, those pieces that, um, like the sky, it's always the sky, you know, you've got these pits left over it <laughs> and it looks like it should fit and you're pressing it down.
0: Like a millimeter like, off.
1: That's right. Yeah. It looks like it should fit. But it doesn't quite fit and you're pressing it down, pressing it down. Well, that's how I felt on the firearms. You know, I felt that like I should fit, but I didn't quite fit. And there there was on, in hindsight and reflections, a lot of reasons why, why that was a lot, lot to do with me, a lot to do with my naivety as an inspector being, the only female there not really having any role models female wise to look after and be able to talk to and then my uh my mentor joined so she wasn't mentor at my at the time uh she's called Liz in the book and she joined and she was a superintendent so she was a couple of ranks above me and she became my mentor and somebody that I could go and speak to whilst I, I was there on the firearms unit and she was one of these people I don't know if you've ever had this but When I left the room from talking with her, I felt like the most important person in the world at that time. And that is a that is a huge skill. Not many people are able to do that. And I kept thinking, oh, what is it? What is it? Why? How does she manage to do that? Of course, I found out later that she was a negotiator. And so she was just giving me a really good listening to and using her negotiation skills. And she said to me, "Have you ever thought about being a negotiator?" We were just talking about career progression and and uh, the future and what it looked like. And I said, um, "Oh, I thought you had to be a chief inspector because at the time in the in the in the Met you had to be a chief inspector to become a negotiator." She said, "No, they changed the rules this year. You have to be an inspector." She said, "I think I think you'd be good at it. I think you'd enjoy it. You've got the right skills for it." So I started to find out a little bit more about it. I spoke to more people that I knew about negotiation I was like yeah this sounds amazing I'd I'd really like to give it a go now in in the Met it only comes out once a year or did at the time comes out once a year in the autumn and I then left firearms policing Uh, Liz was still my mentor and I went to work for the professional standards unit which was the uh, investigating internal complaints and misconduct and things like that so I was working there and the application form came out and I applied for it And I got it. It's quite a, a drawn out process. You have to do an application form. Then you have to have an interview and then you have to do a role play. And I got through it and it took nearly a year for me to get onto my course. So I applied for it in yeah, I must have applied for it in October, November 2007 and December 2008. I finally got on my course. So that was how I ended up becoming a negotiator or applying to become a negotiator.
0: So what was so intensive then about this course? It's two weeks, which is pretty short based on the role you, you went on to do. Why was it so crammed into such a short space of time and what did it consist of?
1: So the so the two-week course, I call it an intensive two-week course because it's I've done firearms courses and they were intense, you know, over periods of time. I've done driving courses. They were intense. I was a, a SOET officer, which is a sexual offences investigative techniques officer. So I'd done all of those courses. So I wasn't, and I actually thought I was quite a good communicator, if I'm honest with you, Stuart. So I, I turn up on this course thinking this would be great. I'm really looking forward to this. And suddenly everything I said, how I said it, what was my thought process behind what I was saying was not challenged. I was asked the question. What made you say that? Oh, hang on a sec. I don't know. What Who's did the negotiator
0: here? Is it yeah. me or is it you? Yeah, yeah. What
1: did, <laughs> what did I say? Why did I say that? And what that I I call it call it a personal development course, not just a negotiation course, because it what it did was it made me look at my belief system. It made me look at my value system, and it made me realise that every conversation I I have is all about me, really. I didn't learn all of that in two weeks. Obviously, it's been a long, gradual process, and I'm still learning. Uh, But it it started me questioning. Okay, hang on a sec. What what is making me say that? And who's that about? Oh, yeah, that's all about me. Well, it can't be all about me because there's somebody there whose life needs saving. So I have to park that. I have to park my thoughts and my judgments and put them over here. And now I'm aware of them. And well, where do they come from? Why am I even thinking that way? And so for me, it turned it turned everything I believe to be true kind of on its head because we communicate in a really unconscious way. Most of the time we just say things and it's not until we have a challenging conversation or a critical conversation or a life-saving conversation that we have to stop and go, hang on a sec. I need to be really conscious here. I need to think about the words that I'm using. I really need to be present and I really need to listen to what that other person is saying to find out what they're telling me, but also what they're not telling me. The course was really long, so it was, it was 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. in the classroom. And then you'd have have your like dinner break, 5 to 6, and then from 6 o'clock till sometimes 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd be in role play and you'd be debriefing that role play. So you were put under immense pressure you and you were exhausted deliberately because most people are in crisis, you know, like at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, not at 4, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And so they wanted to be sure that when you left there, that you were ready to go out and to speak to people in life-changing and life-saving circumstances. Now, that two-week was the be- is the beginning as a negotiator. You then have a choice. You can either say, oh, Well, I've had my two-week course and that's fine. Or like me, I became really obsessed with it and I was like, this is amazing. This is what I want to do for the rest of my career probably the rest of my life I want to know more about psychology communication human behavior and I became like this sponge absorbing all this information and just that's all I wanted to do put myself on call all of the time so in in the UK most negotiators are they do it on top of their day job so I had my day job in professional standards and then I would put myself on call and there was a core team of six people Who worked out of New Scotland Yard and they were full time negotiators and they were responsible for doing all the training, working with Her Majesty's government and um, looking after London negotiators and the response to negotiation. And I was like, I want to be on that team. I really want to be on that team. Not only did I really want to be on that team, but I really want to be part of this training environment because this has had such an impact on my life. I want to be able to take that and share that with other people and make a difference in other people's lives. And so five years later, there was an opportunity to uh, apply for the full-time unit, which I did. And I managed to get onto it, which was, uh, which was amazing. And then spent the last six years of my career doing that full-time and became the director of the UK training in 2013, which was again, a real privilege and an honor to be able to do that. It was just, um, yeah, just the best job I've ever had.
0: The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. It makes sense the way you've described it, that that two week course, because, like you say, what's the odds that you're going to be fully rested uh, midday, called to a crisis and fully able to prepare for it? You're far more likely to get called out of bed two in the morning, aren't you, for it? So, can you remember the first situation you were called to then that needed you to use your skills? Tell me that.
1: Yeah, I, I can recall it really clearly. It was, uh, so I was on call and No, I wasn't on call. I'd been on call before and I hadn't managed to have a a job and I was really desperate to use these new skills. You know, I thought that my two week course, I was going to be able to save and change the world forever as you do when you have a, have a course that you you become passionate about or a new skill. And I, I wasn't on call and my phone rang and it was about half 10 quarter to 11 at night. And. I remember getting really excited because in the middle of my phone was the name Steve, and Steve had been one of the people that had taught me how to be a negotiator initially. And I knew there was only one reason why Steve was phoning me, so I answered the phone really, you know, over eagerly, like a a, a a puppy. And I'm like, "Hi, oh, Steve, yes, how can I help you?" And he's like, "Hi, Nick." Um, really calm and casual and i'm like oh gosh heart pounding you know all those sorts of things that happen when you get overexcited and he said look I'm, i know you're not on call but there's a, an instant about 10 minutes where you live from where you live can you go i said gosh yeah of course i can not a problem and i didn't you know not even thinking about the next day or who would cover my role in my normal work or anything like that everything just went by the wayside he said, right, so there's a there's a guy, he's been released from prison fairly, fairly recently. He was inside for grievous bodily harm. He's gone round to his ex-partner's house. They've had an uh, altercation. She's alleged that he has assaulted her and he's taken the child. So he had this this child with this lady before he went to prison and the child was about two to three months old and he'd never seen the child before. So he's taken he's taken the child without her permission. She's phoned 999. Uh, there's been a car chase around South London where he's failed to stop for police. And they finally have managed to like sting the car. You might have seen it on the 999 programs where they throw the stinger across the road, it punches the tires, and the car comes to a stop. And he's now surrounded by police officers. When I get there, I just remember that this, that he was huge, he filled the whole car, and the child was tiny. He almost like held the child in one hand. Now, for me to get to that call, I had to wait for a fast car. And I remember all these things going through my head about how amazing this was going to be. I was going to go and save the day. He was going to listen to me. I was going to listen to him. We were going to have a great conversation. He was going to hand me the child, shake me by the hand, and and off we'd go. And, of course, none of that happened. I arrived. I I spoke to him for uh, about eight hours. He said two things to me, one I can't repeat, but the other one was, you don't understand. You don't understand. And he ended up being tasered. Uh, the child was was safe and fine and well. We got her back okay, but he ended up being tasered and being arrested. Not in that lovely "here you are, I'll be handcuffed" coming out of the car, but in you know there was a fight and and I just I walked away from that feeling really flat and deflated and thinking, "Gosh, I've been given these new skills, I can't even use them. What's happened? How did that happen?" And I spent many an hour reflecting on that. And and still do, still think about that a lot and have more experience now, more, more knowledge. And then it suddenly dawned on me. And I was like, hang on, that whole conversation, that whole incident was all about me and about how amazing I was going to be, and about all these belief systems that I held about, you know, I've got these great new skills, I'm going to save the world. He's we're going to become friends. He's going to hand me the child. We're going to have a lovely conversation. You know, he didn't see any of that. He probably saw, although I'm guessing because I've never spoken to him since, but he probably saw this white, middle-aged woman walking towards him and thought, oh, how on earth are you going to help me? You're with them. You want to take my child away and send me back to a place I don't want to go. And I never saw that. I never took that moment to stop and go, what does the world look like through your lens? What's the world look like from your perspective? And once I realised how to do that, conversations and negotiation became a lot easier but yeah so i learned a lot from that first negotiation i'll always remember it
0: so for that eight hours then he's he's saying two things yeah what are you talking the whole time or are the periods where you're just waiting it out what's the just talk me through from arriving at the scene because in the films right I know it's mainly like big buildings, die hard hostage situations. You don't think of people threatening to end their own lives and stuff, which I'm assuming you'd get brought in for also i'm I'm guessing you don't arrive on the scene like you know Rocky Balboa walking down, and you know here's here comes the champion kind of thing. Just talk me through what happens from your arrival there, and then over the course of that eight hours, what's actually
1: happening so on arrival, you get a briefing, so the instant is run by a Instant commander who is normally a sergeant or inspector at the local police station. So they have overall responsibility. As a negotiator, I am just a resource to that um, instant commander. So they make all the big decisions. They carry the burden of if it all goes wrong, I have to make sure I've done everything right. Um, and, but also the joy of if it all goes well, I, you know, that'd be great. So negotiators are just an option. So I arrived on scene. I had a briefing with the instant commander, and there are also uh, the negotiator coordinator. So in negotiation, you have a negotiation coordinator who is responsible for looking after the team and taking the initial call and making the decision who to deploy and how many people and what that looks like. And they are also the person that links in with the instant commander. So they they stay with them and tell them what's happening. They're also the person that sets the strategy. And so then I get my strategy from my coordinator who will say, you know, this is what I want you to try and achieve. So just getting most, most of the time it's just getting people to talk because they don't want to talk to you. The majority of the time in police negotiations, people do not want to talk to you. So they don't, you don't just turn up and they suddenly start offloading everything. You have to build a relationship with people, but in any negotiation, in anything that you do from talking to your kids trying to get them to bed to having a negotiation with your partner about Christmas which uh, we're recording this in December so that's always important it's always about always about building relationships and getting people to a point where they trust what you're going to say they trust what you're going to suggest so I then went I had a, another negotiator with me And we we went and started trying to engage. I was the person that was doing the talking. The other person was there to uh, help with the listening and to sort of when nothing's happening and you bounce ideas off each other. So there's like the friend to the lead person, the coach to the lead person. So it was raining. I remember it was raining hard and all the experienced negotiators had great big golfing umbrellas. I remember thinking, yeah, note number one, always take an umbrella. But during the time you don't even remember that it's raining or that it's cold or anything like that, you're so focused on what you're doing and what your role is. So I'm, I'm trying my, so my first job is to try and get him to engage with me, just anything, just even look at me because he's not even looking at me. He's holding the child and he's ignoring everything that is happening around him. So I should imagine knowing more about human behavior that he would, just had a lot of thought process, he was probably in fight, flight or freeze, didn't really know what to do. found himself in a situation that he hadn't planned for. Here he was surrounded by police, so he have had a lot of emotional thoughts going on. Don't want to go back to prison, all those sorts of things. So I'm fighting against that his internal dialogue and and what's going through his head without really even knowing that so just trying to engage him, trying to get him to look at me, trying to get him to wind the window down, try and get him to start thinking about the situation we're in and what's going to happen next and that took that took a long time it takes a long time I remember like after three or four hours he wound the window down that much you know just so that and I was like well that's a breakthrough you know he's <laughs> on the window now, so that's good so just being there and and keeping talking to him and and sort of trying to get a response trying to work out what might be happening for him yeah and that you know, just being told to go away in the politest of terms to start with, <laughs> and then you know you don't understand. And and when I reflect back, I'm thinking, well, actually, you're right. I probably don't understand really because I've never lived your your life. I don't know what it's like to be you. So yeah, very. So, good. and then during the time, as the time goes on, there'll be the. Instant Commander and the negotiation coordinator will be talking about tactics and and plans for the future, and then you might go and have a meeting with them and have a conversation with them, and they'll be saying like, "Can you try this next?" or "This is what this is what you want. This is what we want you to do next." So there's lots going on in the background that you're not privy to because if you're given too much information, that might then show on the conversation that I'm having with you. Yeah, your role is just to engage them and and. And keep them safe, really, and get the safe release of the child.
0: What would you do differently if you could go back now knowing what you know with your experience? What would you do differently?
1: I'd I'd talk to him in a very different way. So if that scenario were to happen again, I I would probably just say it as I saw it and go up to him now and say, do you know what? You probably are looking at me and thinking, what on earth is a white middle-aged woman going to have in common with me? And that I'm here to take your child away from you and send you back to a place you don't want to go. Now, I don't know that to be true, but I'm guessing that because that's probably how I would feel if I were you. And he might not reply, but at least now I've shown that I'm trying to see the world from his perspective.
0: Yeah, you're sort of saying there's a good chance there that you are saying what he's thinking, right? Yeah, absolutely. I guess that breaks down a barrier. Do you have a go-to set of questions that you will typically ask when you arrive on a scene, or is it literally a case of seeing what's going on first and then adapting what you're going to ask.
1: Yeah, it's totally the second one. So you you always plan in a negotiation. And I always say, if you've got a difficult conversation coming up in your life, think about it before you go straight in, because it just allows your emotional brain to settle down and you can start to think about what you're going to say. So don't have a, a, a set of questions to go to. Big open questions, you know, like the what, where, when, how, who, why, where are always great to start any conversation because you get more from the other. Des- those big open questions, as you probably know, are designed to get more than a yes-no response. So we, you want to start there. In any relationship you're building, big open questions are always where you're going to start. And then you just literally adapt to what you've got in front of you because some people some people will engage with you fairly soon mm-hmm. afterwards. And you can and and some people just want to talk, you know, some people have never been given a good listening to. I that's what I always say, give them a good listening to. And people always laugh. But but actually when when we are listened to, it helps us to feel valued and validated and to have a, a place in the world. And many times in our lives, we just want to be listened to. We don't want people to give us advice. We don't want them to solve our problem. We don't want them to tell us how we should do it or that we need to do this. We just want someone to listen to us because we can often see a different path when somebody does that. So yeah, so no no set, you have to have quite an adaptive brain. You have to be quite quick on your feet about thinking outside the box and go with what you've got in front of you.
0: That leads on to a question. One of my patron members asked is this is from Karen. So Karen said, what would you say are three core skills a negotiator must have?
1: Yeah. Great question, Karen. So three core skills. First one is the ability to listen, but really listen, not just half-heartedly listen. So the ability to switch everything else off in your brain and be in that moment, in that present moment with the other person. So I'd say that one. And And that sounds so easy. And when people say to me, I've got a really difficult conversation coming up, what would you suggest? And I go, listen to the other person. And they're like, that's easy. I always do that. And I'm like, "Mm, hang on, let's let's rewind that because it's actually a really hard thing to do is to stop that that unconscious brain kicking in and, and that judgment brain kicking in is to just quieten that down and go, right, I'm ignoring all of this. This is this. You are my focus and nothing else matters for that for this period of time. So that's the first one to be able to really listen, actively listen and be present. The second one is patience, because sometimes you will make judgments about other people and and sometimes they will say things and do things that are completely against what you believe to be true and what your opinion is. And sometimes they will even challenge your opinion and it can feel like you're being challenged. So having the patience to stay non-emotional, very logical and thinking of it factually rather than bringing your own emotions into it. And the third one I would say is resilience, because like that first negotiation, that was eight hours. I've been on negotiations that have taken 13 hours before. I've been on um international negotiations that have taken six months to a year. So having the patience uh, and the resilience sorry, having the resilience when things don't go your way, when you don't get the response that that you want to, to get, whether that's from the other person or from somebody else making the decisions. So as a negotiator, I would often be negotiating with the person in front of me, but also my um, when I became a negotiator coordinator, I'd be often negotiating with people who are making the decisions. So, yeah, and, and in, in your lives, that could be you're having a negotiation with a member of your team, but then naturally your boss is making a different decision or you're having a negotiation with your child, but then your partner is making a different decision. So you end up negotiating with all parties. So that's resilience as well, yeah. Listening, patience, resilience, definitely.
0: The listening one's interesting because people have a tendency to be so concerned about what their follow-up question is that they don't listen to the answer of the question, which is interesting. So if you've got a set of questions prepared, and I'm not talking about interviews, I'm talking you could confront, say, your partner about what you're going to do that weekend. You might say, what about this, this, and this? If you don't listen to the answer, you can't adapt to the conversation. You're just going to worm it back to question two. And I think active listening, I mean, working at a call center, I think has helped me with that. (laughs) It's just like, you really have to listen because you've got a pissed off customer at the end of the, uh, at the end of the phone line there. I'm curious about how much information you give about yourself. Is that something that's frowned upon or is that something you would use as a tactic?
1: Uh, that's a that's a, a great question because the tendency is to talk about yourself. We like we like to talk about ourselves. It's and and that's fine. It's just about it's just about knowing none of this, like not listening, being unconscious, being judgmental. None of this is wrong. It's about understanding that that's what we do. So, if I if if I'm talking to somebody in any scenario. Like, uh, uh, let me give you the, my favorite one, which is about, you know, when people are ill, <laughs> this is what we, I love this, because this happens every day. And if you if you listen to this and then go and listen to, to any conversation where somebody's ill, it goes a little bit like this. Hey, how are you today? Oh, do you know what? I'm not great. I've got a cold. So one of two things will happen now in general. We'll either say, oh, yeah, there's loads of that going around. Or, <laughs> or we'll go, oh, yeah, I had that cold last week. Yeah. Oh, it took me ages to get over it. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> really awful. And suddenly we've taken the conversation away from this person that was talking about being ill and we made it all about us. So in in any negotiation, in any conversation, this goes, for whether I'm talking to somebody who's in a life or death scenario or whether I'm talking to somebody I'm talking to in the street who's having a tough time. You have to. One of my mentors always said this to me. He said, Nick, you have to earn the right and you have to make sure that it's okay for the other person. So it might be that I will share a story. It might be that I will offer an opinion, but I will wait until I'm asked about that. So somebody might say to me, say they've been, say um, there's a siege going on. Uh, They didn't mean this to happen. They've come home from the pub. They've had a few pints. They've had a big row with their partner. Their neighbours heard the big row, called police. Police are knocking on the door, and now they've gone. Ah, the police are here. I don't want to get into trouble, so they they're going like, "You're not coming in. You're not coming in. I'm not letting anybody out." And then gradually, as the alcohol wears off, and they start to have a more logical conversation, they get to that that place where they're like, maybe even a little bit embarrassed about what's happened, or well, then they're not feeling great about themselves. So they might say what do you think I should do? And now, because they've asked me that question, I've, I've, I've earned that right to answer that question.
0: Rather than telling them, you mean like rather than telling them.
1: Yeah. yeah. Rather yeah. than saying, well, oh, you need to come out, mate. <laughs> cause, cause I, why would you listen to me? You don't even know me. If you ask me the question or, or it might be that you're, you're having a conversation. Um, I've got a 16 year old in my life and I, I'm very mindful and, I use her as as a, as a practice because because it challenges every part of my being especially if she's being an emotional person that triggers my own emotions or perhaps she's challenging an, an opinion or pushing the boundaries so I I consciously make an effort to practice and then if she says to me what's your opinion I'll give it to her but I won't give her my opinion straight off the bat like because and we do that all the time we go you should do this, you should do that. And what's happened happens when we do that is we we look at it from our own perspective. I remember sitting on the train going into London. It was a young girl opposite me, about 14, 15, and I think she was with her dad. I'm going to assume she was with her dad. And they were having a conversation. It sounded like they were going to an audition and she was super excited and she was sharing it with her dad And and they were talking about it. And then he said this, he said, this is what you should do when you get on stage. As soon as he said that, she put her earphones in and just smiled at him. And she wasn't listening to him at all. She, she'd she gone, switched off because he'd taken that support conversation and made it all about his opinion. And we do it all the time. So, yeah. Especially
0: with kids. It's with so, kids. I mean, it, it's, it's one of them, isn't it? Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Rather than say, do you think that's the right thing to do? Or why are you doing that? You know, don't half push you. But that's an interesting one. What the dad, what the dad perhaps should have said is what are you going to do when you get there? Right. Rather than say, do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, an interesting one.
1: Or even have you considered, have, have, you con- yeah. have you considered doing this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. I was going to ask, what's your proudest moment? So what situation have you been in where you thought that's a really good result That. Yeah.
1: And, there are so, there are so many, honestly, work at, the great thing about being a negotiator is you work with like-minded people um, who are there, or they're always there for the right reasons because they want to make a difference in someone's life or they want to save a life. And there's always a great team around you. So on our little unit of six, we did a lot, a lot of work. We were super busy. You know, I was away between six to seven months of the year. In different countries, either working or um, training other people, we had lots of incidents that were going on. Uh, but I, I joined the team when ISIS were taking over Syria, so there was a lot of British nationals being kidnapped and, and very sadly killed. So there was a lot of work there with families and and just trying to and talking through things, as well as. Lots of work in London in general, anyway, because it's super busy. There's like a kidnap a kidnapper week in London, so our, our little team were were really busy. Uh, one of the proudest moments is what we won the Metropolitan Police Team of the Year award, which was phenomenal to be recognised for that. Um, another of my proudest moments was becoming the UK director of training and being responsible for training lots of other negotiators. Incredibly proud of that. I'm proud of every single incident that we ever went to because I always knew that whatever the outcome we would have done our best to make a difference on that day there are lots of instances that stick in my mind that that I'm super super proud of there's one where um and it's in the book and it's about uh a couple of people being kidnapped in Nigeria and it was like, it's called 36 hours, but it was the fastest 36 hours, most intense 36 hours of my life, whereby we were having to negotiate through a private security company in another country in different time zones. So I'm really proud of how we worked as a team around that and what that looked like. And and we got a phenomenal result and got those people back, which was great. Yeah, I mean, just, I think probably, honestly, I was just really proud to be a negotiator.
0: It seems like a rewarding job. Really rewarding. It's it's, it's so fascinating to me. Do people ever get the backup, though? You know, when you're speaking to someone, I imagine there's probably people who think, hang on a minute, you're a negotiator. You're not going to, almost like manipulate me. Because that's a strong word. I appreciate that. But that's almost what the what a pessimist would look at your job as being right. Do you ever get people that get the backup and think outright, oh, I'm not talking to you similar to that first guy, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Lots of people won't talk to you, but, but not because they think they're going to manipulate you. And that's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Cause I would say, we're not manipulating. We're influencing. <laughs> <you're judging." laughs>
0: yeah.
1: You know, and when you look up the dictionary, dictionary definitions, manipulation is around um, getting somebody to do something which benefits you. And not necessarily then. Whereas influence and persuasion is getting somebody to do something that will hopefully benefit both. And we used to have this conversation all the time because it is, it, and it's really interesting because nobody wants to be manipulated. But actually, if I'm telling you to step away from the edge of the building, it's because I don't want you to die. So I am manipulating you to doing something that I, I want you to do. Hopefully, I'm moving towards influence and persuasion because actually, for me. And it's again about beliefs. For me, that's the right thing, but actually, for the person there, it might not be the right thing. Who, you know, who am I to say? But we we give them we give them choice. So I've never I've had lots of people who who don't want to talk, maybe because they they're actually trying to make that decision in their head at that time. As do I want to live or die? And also, I've had people that don't want to talk because they know the end result is they're going to be arrested. So they'll often not not talk because they think if they don't talk, then it will all just go away. But eventually, they'll go. I I need to talk to somebody here. So you are as good as any anybody else. I've never had somebody go. Oh, you're a negotiator. I'm not. You know, I know what you're doing. <laughs> I never had that. So most people, when when you speak to them, are in crisis. But, and it's interesting because we've had negotiators talk to other negotiators who have been in crisis, and even though you know what they're doing because they're so good at what they do. They're still able to build that relationship and have a proper conversation with somebody.
0: That's interesting. What's the most challenging. So the 36 hours is probably up there, right? In Nigeria. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Let's, let's frame it a different way then. What's the most concerned that you've been that if I don't get this right, something catastrophic could happen?
1: Definitely 36 hours.
0: Okay. Most
1: definitely. uh, Because there were so many elements to that. And we knew at one stage that they were being, so they were kidnapped by criminals, but we knew at one stage they were walking towards the terrorist area where they were going to sell them on. So that was a really critical time. Okay. But then every single suicidal intervention I've ever been part of Most of them happen at height, and you are literally having a conversation with somebody who is making a decision about whether they're going to live or die that day.
0: How does that make you feel?
1: Yeah. Uh, At the time, I was trying to describe this the other day to somebody, at the time, you just get on with it you know ner- you're nervous before you go of course you are because you're running for every scenario in your head but once you're there you just become part of the scenario and and you just you just you just get into the heart heart of it and and you're so focused and you're so present with the other person time just disappears and flies by and you don't even think about your own feelings it's only probably afterwards depending on what's happened that you will sit down and go okay how was that and we used to debrief everything thankfully we're 90 95 successful most of the time I've only had one person who jumped in front of me and I hadn't even started the conversation really with them and that you know that's horrific to watch but thankfully I haven't had many where we haven't been successful
0: This next question, I'm going to be really careful how I frame it, and I hope it comes across in the right way. It might be relevant more to those who are just starting out. So you mentioned in that first negotiation, your mindset was all about me, 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 without realizing it consciously. If you're attending a situation where someone's threatening to take their own life, would there ever be a part of you that thinks, if I get this wrong and they end up succeeding, that could hinder my career in a way I don't know if that makes sense but I you mentioned that when you're talking to them you're so focused on saving that person's life for that person is there ever a niggling feeling at the back that thinks if I save them I'm going to look really good but if they if they end up doing it that's going to reflect bad on me does that ever enter your mind no
1: and I think I Appreciate what you're saying. So one of the one of the one of the questions I was asked as a firearms officer was, "How will you feel if you have to shoot somebody?" And one of the questions I was asked as a negotiator is, "How will you feel if you lose somebody?" I now realize the answer to those both both of those questions is, "I have no idea," because I don't think you do. I think you can you can say what you think. A, you should say, you know, uh, but also B we all have an idea of how we'll be in a crisis or how we'll deal with it. And a lot of it's down to training. A lot of it's down to your support network. A lot of it's down to how you manage stress and pressure and all those sorts of things. Honestly, I don't think until it's happened to you that you actually know how you're, how you're going to react.
0: How do you take that burden home with you though? Like if, for example, that one, that one scenario where you've lost someone and you have your debrief and it's Unfortunately, it's, it's part of the job at times. It can always happen as an outcome, but how did, how do you then go home and live your normal life knowing that that's happened? Do you have to compartmentalize things? Do you have outlets that you turn to, to de-stress? What's the process at home?
1: Yeah. So definitely put in, in a little box somewhere at the back of your brain and hope that the box never gets opened I love being in the gym that is where that's my go to when I was much younger it was cigarettes and alcohol I'll be honest with you you know I I'd, I'd go home and have a large scotch and smoke a packet of fags but when I became a negotiator thankfully I had moved forward with that that stage in life so I was no longer really a drinker or or a smoker um and my biggest outlet is uh definitely physical exercise of some sort I would always, I never would talk about it at home. So my partner is still a police officer and we very rarely talk about, I call it the darkness in the book, but I very rarely talk about the darkness in the book within the home environment. And we used to have mandatory referral to occupational health. So if there was something very traumatic or you'd lost somebody or were involved in a team that had something had happened, all all you were suffering then there was occupational health and also we know from research with negotiation and negotiators especially that quite a lot of negotiators are very emotionally intelligent and they suffer from something called emotional transfer so when they're talking to somebody they'll take on the emotions of the other person so we know we know that happens and so we had a plan plan in place a few years before i'd left policing and you'd fill in the questionnaire and then they would psychologically assess you. And if they felt that you needed some extra help, they would give you that. So, yeah.
0: So 2018, you retired from policing. Yeah. And then 2022, you're awarded a British Empire Medal. Yeah. That must've been a proud moment.
1: Incredibly proud, really proud moment. Yeah. Still still can't quite believe it. Um, so yeah, I, and this is again where conversations are amazing. I didn't know what I was going to do. And and perhaps some of your listeners can relate to this. You know, you've been in in one particular role or one particular career for a long time. It kind of becomes your identity and who you are. So if anybody ever asked me, I was always like Nick the police officer or Nick the negotiator. And after 31 years because I'd grown up in policing you know, I started when I was 18 and I I was like well who am I who 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 am I now what's going to happen for the rest of my life and I live in a little village and I had my car at the local village garage being serviced it was a, a Skoda dealership at one stage and it was being serviced and the guy that had owned it for 48 years was was getting on a bit and his daughter used to run the office part of it. She said, Nick, what are you going to do? And I was like, Melissa, I've got no idea. I said, you know, I've retrained as a personal trainer. I love fitness and health. Um, I love all that. I've got a performance coaching qualification and, and, you know, I've been a hostage and crisis negotiator, but I don't know how that all fits together. And she said, gosh, she said, I used to be a personal trainer. And I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. She said, dad asked me to come and help him here. And I've been here for the last 10 years. But as he's kind of wound up the car showroom side of things, I've suggested to him that we have a gym here. Jokingly, I said, that would be amazing because it's just down the road. And that would be awesome for me, selfishly, of course. Um, I said, put a coffee shop on the side of it because I've lived and worked in London and everything revolves around coffee. And that, that would be awesome. And uh, she said, oh, it's for sale. I was like, okay, <laughs> great. So I went home and I said to my other half, oh, garage is for sale. And the next thing, it was like, well, buy it. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with the garage? And so we converted the car showroom and put a gym and a coffee shop in there and kept the garage workshop. And um, I suddenly realized that all my conversations I was having with customers and team and working work people that you know trades people that were coming all the conversations I was having I was using my hostage and crisis negotiation skills I thought that's interesting so I set up a little business that uh, teaches all the lessons I've learned about hostage and crisis negotiation to other people especially in leadership and um, we were just getting up and running of course COVID hit so we had to close the gym mandatory Uh, so we took that online and uh, we had to close the garage workshop because nobody needed their car fixing because everybody was getting like four months to a gallon at the time. Nobody was driving anywhere. So I didn't have any work coming in. And they pushed all the MOTs. I don't know if you remember from April onwards, they pushed all the MOTs forward by six months. So nobody needed an MOT. Yeah. So I had to furlough my staff there. And then with the coffee shop, and I'm so grateful for actually, you know, policing instilled this in me. But I was like, I'm not closing the coffee shop. I can't walk away from a crisis that we're having. There's people in this community that really need us to be here. And I knew that because when we'd first opened the coffee shop, it was all a bit, why on earth is if we got one in the village? And then gradually it became a real central focal point for people to come and meet. So we went to takeaway and we kind of became like a Meals on Wheels place so we were getting food out to people who really needed it we had families of older generation in the village phoning us up and asking us to deliver food and then we'd go and stand on the doorstep and have a half hour hour conversation with them you know just to check in and make sure they were okay we matched people that wanted to do something with people that needed people to do something for them so we came like a central hub we set up a community kindness um social enterprise and uh yeah it was it was it was amazing um ran free classes online uh gym wise for the community and just just threw through through ourselves into helping the community as much as possible and some somebody very kindly put my name forward in uh, a medal and yeah in the the queen's last new year's days honors list in 2022 i I was yeah, incredibly proud to receive a British Empire Medal for meritorious service to my community during the pandemic. So,
0: wow, That's so cool. Well, I'm going to pinpoint everyone again to your book. So, as a reminder, it's called Crisis: True Stories of My Life as a Hostage Negotiator. I'll put a link in the description of this episode so people can go and give it a read. It's at the minute. I don't know if you know this, but on Amazon, it's the number one most gifted book in the gang violence subgenre. Mm-hmm. Which there you go, which is pretty go. cool. Yeah, is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, so so it's definitely in demand. So yeah, go out and uh, get a copy of Crisis, Nikki. Thank you for your time. Thank really you. Really, been lovely speaking to you. And for everyone else, I will see you next week.